Welcome to Communication Mixtown, I'm Rima Rattan. Black Lives Matter protests around the world have once again drawn attention to the monuments that dot urban centres. Starting with the toppling of slaver Edward Colston's statue in Bristol, a number of such monuments have been pulled down in cities around the world. But not in Australia. To try to understand the reasons for both of these things, I asked two researchers about what monuments communicate. I'm Bruce Skates. I'm a professor of history at the Australian National University. And for some years now, I've been working in the field of commemoration, both the commemoration of the Great War, but also of the war that's so often denied in our own country, the wars of dispossession. Hello, I'm Shanti Sumartayo. I'm an associate professor of design research and a member of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. My work is about um, how people experience and make sense of their surroundings, particularly around design and technology, but also how that connects to things like identity and public space. Why don't you start, Shanti, by telling us what are monuments and what are they for? Monuments conventionally are, of course, about what we want to remember, what we want to remember going forward as a society. The monuments that are in our built environments now, in our cities and towns, are structures that are a way of the past speaking to us about what they want us to know, um, what they think is enduring about our kind of collective identity. But I, I think there are also some other important things that monuments do that move, you know, that are adjacent to, but that move beyond the kind of conventional way of thinking about them as um, historical artifacts or about carriers of uh, social and cultural memory. I think monuments are also about politics and power, both in the past, you know, who got to decide who was going to be commemorated, who was able to pay for the monument to be put up, but also about the politics and power of the present because they still have to be maintained. There's still uh, discourse that's constructed around them. And the contours of those conversations often um, travel across lots of different cultural artifacts. And Anzac is the perfect example of this, as are things like colonial statues with narratives that travel across into other ways of thinking about Australia's settler colonial history. I think another thing they do that's important to remember is that they're urban landmarks. They punctuate our cities in particular ways. They sit at intersections or, you know, at the ends of avenues. I mean, they don't all do this, but in many places they work as a sort of kind of rhythmic kind of punctuation to the urban landscape. So we become used to sort of seeing them in those sorts of settings. But finally, and I think this is really important and it follows on from my previous point, is they, they often slip into not being noticed anymore. They're these everyday kinds of objects, you know, they're, they're things that we, you know, we may sort of walk past a place where one's been removed and we think, oh, was there something there? I don't exactly remember what was there and I don't know who it was, even if there was someone there. So they are kind of banal, mundane, almost unnoticeable 
features of our kind of surroundings. So, so they're not always at the forefront of kind of historical debate. Sometimes they're just, you know, where you turn left to get the tram. So I think it's important to remember they're kind of everyday, banal, mundane, and, you know, almost unimportant kind of aspects that still makes them part of our everyday surroundings. If I could just go on from that lovely remark about the fate of every monument is to become invisible, which I think does happen. Um, and it's nicely illustrated for, you know, you, you listeners in Melbourne, um, the Shrine of Remembrance. It was sighted to be seen from all across the city. There were protected sight lines down St Kilda Road that were protected so that the shrine would always be visible and that injunction that lest we forget would always be ever present. But Shandy's point is a good one in that it becomes commonplace, it becomes mundane. People don't even notice it anymore set up there on the domain. So I think that's an irony. I think the other thing I'd point out is is the the way that even from before they're built, monuments are, are cut loose from the the meanings that are originally intended. Everybody views memorials in a different way. They take different messages from them. And if I could quote Jay Winter here, who's of course done a great deal of work on, on monuments of the First World War, what we see today are the political meanings that are set deep in a particular monument and we relate to that imagery. But we should also remember the immense uh, emotional investment that the generation who raised those monuments had in those structures. So they're very private places as well. Ironic again, isn't it? A, a public statement, but also a private space to relate to. So they're extraordinarily rich uh, structures in, in in our landscape, not just not just the urban landscape, but principally the urban landscape, I think. And they can be engaged with. You can embark on a conversation with a memorial that travels well beyond its original meaning. Monuments are a statement of power and privilege. They're seizing a place in the public domain. And, you know, obviously in the context of those colonial monuments that condone the racism of the past, to, to tolerate them still in our urban landscape, I, I find absolutely unconscionable. It's just simply not an option. So we have to reckon with these structures, uh, structures that were raised by a past generation. I think there are instances, though, of more democratic memorials. Ken Inglis has talked about the war memorial movement and the point that he makes about those memorials from the First World War is that they were raised not by the state, apart from the um, state memorials and the national memorial, but for the most part by communities. Communities raised them, communities made raised the money to build them. That's not to say that leading figures in the community didn't shape those discussions, though, and that there weren't a lot of debates over the form that those particular memorials would take. But what we find with the memorial is that it's a kind of platform, if you like, for people to engage with in other ways. So you might build a memorial to the Great War, but I would say that equally significant are the memorials that follow it. So the generations that lay their tributes, uh, their wreaths, their messages, their photographs at the base of that memorial, they're just as significant as the original structure. And that goes back to my point before about the meanings of monuments being unleashed even before they're actually completed. This idea of these structures being activated and reinscribed continually mm. through time. So that might be someone laying a wreath every year. It might be someone meeting there for lunch, you know, to meet me under Burke and Wills, you know, even <laughs> though that memorial has moved around a lot in central Melbourne, mm. but, you know, meet me at this particular place. You know, it might be that there's a regime change and a memorial or a statue gets torn down and is replaced with a park and people speak of where so-and-so used to stand rather than where it is now. So the, the point is that these are kind of ongoingly made 
and ongoingly inscribed structures. And so when we speak of politics and power, that travels along kind of multiple trajectories at different scales. So it might be metropolitan politics, it might be the sort of cultural politics or history wars, but it might be the sort of personal, intimate, and as Bruce said, private kind of engagements with structures that make them mean really different things. You know, when you put another plaque or another statue in, for example, in the domain near Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance, its meaning is augmented and enhanced by its location alongside lots of other plaques and statues and memorials, usually around war service. And so what happens is you get these kinds of kind of constellations of memorials that are all in relationship to each other. They're not just standing alone, but they're in these sort of precincts. And you can see that at the Shrine of Remembrance. So I think this question of politics and power ripples out far beyond this, you know, the, the singular erection of the structure you know, at that moment in time, but instead sort of travels forward in lots of different scales and also speaks to its kind of spatial surroundings in really important ways. I want to sort of hone in on colonial monuments in Australia because they are essentially a a point of contestation now. How do we even start to read them? I think it's really important to remember the reason those monuments were raised. The assumption was, I think, in the late 19th, early 20th century, and during, of course, that whole early Commonwealth period that Australia lacked a history, uh, a great irony, given that we're living alongside the oldest continuous civilization in the world. And there was a sense that we had to go back and celebrate a kind of pioneer mythology of opening up the land. The discourse that was used, of course, was settling the land. Uh, and that before us, there was virtually nothing, nothing of consequence. It's written quite explicitly in uh, the history books at the time. But it's also written quite explicitly in the memorials that are raised, whether they're memorials to individual explorers or whether they're memorials. And this is really interesting. And again, a Victorian case for you, the cairns that are raised in the 1920s, marking the trek of explorers, so-called explorers across the land. They passed this way, those cairns read. What they overlook, of course, is, is well, a number of things. The fact that um, those explorers were walking across a land that had already been expl- explored and named, discovered long before them. But also, of course, the whole process of dispossession that that exploration was about. This was the intelligence core of the European invasion of Aboriginal country. And finally, of course, what they overlook is that a terrible history of, of violence that erupts right across the frontier in Victoria. Now, of course, we grapple with those monuments. It's debated. Um, the Wellington Shire down in East Gippsland is now debating whether they should, in fact, remove monuments, cans, uh, celebrating the journey of Angus Macmillan across the landscape. Macmillan, of course, has, is no longer the name of a federal electorate. We felt it was inappropriate that someone implicated, as he was, in the mass murder of Aboriginal people should be celebrated in that way. But the council recently voted no, no, we will not remove that monument. So it's almost as though we've got a kind of paralysis here. I actually think we have to confront these issues and think very seriously about what those monuments are saying, not just about the past and past structures of power and privilege, but about today, because they're condoning systems of power and privilege in our society. We don't have a unique situation in Australia with a colonial history of violence and discrimination. I mean, this is the case, you know, in many places in the world where memorial structures are often the kind of lightning rods for for contemporary contests around how do we you know it's not just about taking down a memorial is it it's about how do we understand ourselves you know how do we how do we grapple 
not only grapple with what happened in the past, but recognize, face up to, and try to do something about the horrible legacy of that violence and dispossession, which, you know, in many post-colonial countries is a living issue, you know, and, and an urgent one. I think the resistance is because of the difficulty of the struggle. I mean, these are deep-seated issues, not just of abstract questions of identity or memory, but of living tangible injustice in our kind of societies. So I, I suppose when I sort of see these contests, I don't think this isn't just about a bit of bronze, you know, on a stone plinth, you know, that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, some kind of admission and process of reconciliation that is deeply difficult for individuals and for political systems to grapple with. But what I will say is that I think that these kinds of structures and the contests around them, if nothing else, perhaps they give us a vocabulary or perhaps they give us a moment around which we can have these conversations that force us to confront them. You know, we're not very good in Australia at genuine ways of addressing and reconciling ourselves with our settler colonial history. Like, we're just not very good at it. And, and I think that at least these structures might give us a point around which we can, sure, argue, but maybe, a, maybe it's the beginning of a shared vocabulary at least. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown, and today we're exploring the meanings of monuments. Bruce, you were involved in changes made to the Maitland-Brown Memorial in Fremantle. Could you give us a a narrative of how that went or what happened? Yeah. Well, the memorial's raised in 1911 originally, but it looks back to an event uh, in colonial times uh, in the 1860s where uh, three white explorers, intrepid pioneers as they're described on the plaque, were, and again I'm quoting, murdered uh, in their sleep, and again I'm quoting by treacherous natives. Um, so it commemorates that event, but it also commemorates what happened afterwards, which is a, a punitive expedition, a punitive expedition that was led by Maitland Brown. In that expedition, Maitland Brown probably killed around 20 Aboriginal people. We're not sure of the precise number. And as Lyndall Ryan and Henry Reynolds' works has shown, um, it's just so difficult to, to determine with any certainty the scale of violence on the frontier. What we do know is that it was massive, that it was devastating, and that the trauma is still felt in those communities today. The monument was subjected to vigorous historical critique 
uh, and and that that began essentially in 1988. It began because partly because it was Australia's bicentenary, and it it seemed to me a very appropriate moment to reckon with the claims made by the monument. Those claims had to be discredited in order to get any kind of traction within the Fremantle City Council. The original response, I think, from many sections of the community, particularly from the press, the local press was very hostile to proposals to change the monument or or have any kind of counter-memorialisation. There was an unwillingness to critique the actions of past generations. Those were the values of the age, we, we were told time and time again. And we were also told that we were somehow urging a sense of guilt upon the white community. All of those remarks I find deeply offensive. I, I, I think that... It's interesting the way that the counter plaque begins. Uh, this plaque is laid here by people who find this monument offensive. Mm. Um, so it was actually an act of repudiation, a repudiation of what happened back in the 19th century and well into the 20th. I mean, going back to our earlier point about power and privilege, the monument is actually the product of the leading pastoral families of Western Australia who pay for it, who commissioned the famous artist to actually sculpt it. And it's there, proclaiming their conquest in in their terms of aboriginal country so it's a it's a long uh, story uh, but it it basically ended in a, a counter memorialization of sorts i say of sorts because i don't think this is finished business i really don't mm. i don't think that by simply putting a plaque there saying well all of these things that you are reading on this monument express not just racist views and condone violence against Aboriginal people, but in so many points in terms of the archival record are simply wrong, are simply lies. I don't think that's enough. I actually think that what you need to do is to open up spaces. And I've been particularly heartened by what's emerged out of the um, the ongoing reflection around the Maitland Brown Memorial. For example, at Bidjidanga, Bidjidanga up north near Broome, where these events originally happened, the community there is now embarked on an exhibition, uh, an exhibition that's telling stories from the other side of the frontier. And those stories are not the stories that white historians tell. They're not based on a kind of archival evidence that you would write down and put in a submission to the Fremantle City Council. They're actually based on memory, on, an, on, on the emotional truth of the traumatic dislocation that went on in, in the 19th century and well into the 20th. And of course, at the, the dedication of the new plaque itself, I found that engagement with the memorial by Aboriginal people, a memorial in itself. And what do I mean by that? I mean the ritual whereby elders from the community uh, scattered dust from the site of the massacre around the base of the memorial. I mean the dances um, that were performed by people from Pinjara's an act of healing around the monument. All of this was a very powerful engagement with a structure that really had to be reckoned with. Uh, and I guess that's the key point. Not to have reckoned with that memorial was to, to, to leave not just a lie on the landscape, but one that one that condones a historical continuum of violence and, and dispossession. I think I should add here that, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement, it, especially in Australia, there's been many, many references to deaths in custody. The hostages that were killed by Maitland Brown were essentially deaths in custody. Mm -hmm. They were men who were chained. Um, Panter and Goldweir were part of the colonial police force. There, there, there's nothing new about this, um, this, this issue of deaths in custody. It goes back to the 19th century. And so that was a really appropriate frame of reference. And I'm not surprised that we're turning to it today. 
What are the limitations, do you think, of that sort of dialogic memorialization? Well, limitation for me is that I never read plaques. Yeah. I don't think many people read plaques, frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sure, the limits are to, are to, you know, reading of plaques. But, I mean, you said it yourself. You know, they force you to engage with them in bodily ways. As I said, when we started this conversation, they're in the landscape, you know, in our streetscapes, especially in a you know, in a grid, gridded city like Melbourne in particular ways, you know, they become kind of lightning rods for protest and, and dissent. You know, those aren't just about reading plaques. They're about everything else that sits around what those plaques symbolise and what they say. And we can read something other than text, can't we? I mm. mean, what strikes me Absolutely. about the memorial are the visual, the visual narrative that accompanies it. So you've got the bas-relief that's depicting those hostages in chains. You've got the mm. picture of the three men who were murdered uh, presented in this kind of saintly pose. Um, these are the martyrs of the European invasion of Aboriginal land. So it's making a very powerful visual statement. It's a package. Yes. And I did do a lot of surveys of because I lived in Fremantle for a number of years, a public engagement with that memorial, it's considerable and it's growing. Um, that memorial is now a teaching site for both Murdoch University and the University of Notre Dame, not so far away. I think it is very much within the, the public consciousness. And another reason that it's within the public consciousness, consciousness is the sheer eminence of, of the artist, the sculptor, uh, Pietro Porcelli, who's celebrated as one of the, um, the great sculptors uh, in Fremantle. So that monument is no longer, I think, invisible in the way that maybe it could have become. I'd like to not walk down the public square and and when I look up, I'm looking up to a, a white man who's a great man of history. It's not just that you're you're walking down that that um, that that city street and you're looking up at the statue of the great man. That city street has probably been named after another yep. great man. So so they're kind of monumentalised in the naming of the landscape. They're part of the geography of the place, and I think part of the process. And this has begun in Australia, and it's certainly um, been common practice in uh, Aotearoa and New Zealand for a number of years. Is is the learning of another language using other place names, acknowledging prior possession of the country, a prior a, a, a sovereignty that's needed, never been ceded, and actually learning the names of these places. I think that's a tremendous step forward in that process of, of reconciliation. And I, and I think it does demand that we learn another language, that we try and view things through the lens of a different culture to our own, speaking from my particular perspective here. Graham Davison makes the point that, um, you know, there was this kind of colonial age of the great monument where great men were celebrated. Uh, and as I said before, that's qualified to some extent with that more democratic um, movement during the, the Great War. And what's interesting today is that there's been a, it's not as though we've stopped building these monuments. It's been alarming the number of monuments that emerged during the centenary of Anzac. Shanti, you'll know all about this. And I'm sure you'll agree, Shanti, that's even more alarming the monuments that were proposed that weren't actually mm. raised from the public who, you know, my God, the lionisation of, of uh, Australia's involvement in war is, is truly frightening. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think this is uh, a, a real problem in our society. Actually, this brings us at a, a good juncture to talk about nation building and how monuments sort of interact with that. Monuments and memorials and the commemorative events that go along with them are one thing that are used to consolidate and 
promulgate, I suppose, particular narratives of nation building. And, and so these, they're, you know, they're not neutral because they're accompanied by stories, discourse, certain voices are louder than others. But they, especially when they're spatialized, they also provide places for people to gather and join together in the sort of telling of these stories and, you know, participate in them. And so Anzac's a perfect example of how these kind of, you know, massive commemorative spaces, everything from, you know, the War Memorial to the Shrine of Remembrance to the very modest life-size sort of poignant small memorials in country towns where sort of people gather on Anzac Day. All these sort of different structures are part of a kind of ongoing conversation about memorials and their role in, in national identity. However, what we have to remember about, for example, something like Anzac Day, you know, as someone sort of pointed out, more people go to the MCG on a normal weekend than go to an Anzac Day service at the Shrine of Remembrance every year. Yes, these are moments when a lot of people kind of commemorate, gather at memorials, engage in the kind of narratives that these memorials help to instantiate. But they're also, you know, moments when people kind of have a, have a lion or go for a walk with the dog or do a bit of gardening. So while a lot of money can be spent on them and they're very visible in some ways, in other, every quieter, everyday, more mundane ways, these kind of discourses that memorials represent are not kind of just swallowed whole by the whole population. But they are important. I mean, we can't deny that a lot of money is spent on them by governments in order to push forward certain kinds of ways of thinking about the nation. And Anzac's a perfect example. I mean, you know, up to private and public, sort of half a billion dollars was spent during the 2014-18 centenary of Anzac. That is a lot of money to, you know, for programs and new memorials and, um, you know, various commemorative events. And so, of course, this has an impact, or it's hoped to have an impact on on how um, national identity is uh, refracted sort of through these narratives. But it's not ubiquitous, it's not uniform, and we don't all make sense of it in the same way. And what I also take heart in is is the, the way that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people have actually engaged with these memorials to Anzac and added a different kind of story. So for example, in Collie in Western Australia, there's a plaque by that humble cenotaph there. It's really quite a beautiful structure. But the plaque reads uh, to honour Aboriginal people who died for their country. And you can read mm. that in lots of different ways. You, that's you, you brilliant. Know, that's, that's probably not a reference, I think, to, yeah. to dying in Flanders or the Somme. It's a reference mm. to here. Um, and there's lots of instances of that kind of creative engagement with memorial spaces. That was Professor Bruce Cates from Australian National University and Shanti Sumatoyo from Monash University having a discussion about what monuments communicate. What you heard was part of a much longer conversation, more of which I'm hoping to bring to you over the summer. That's all from Communication Mixdown this week. I hope you can join us again at the same time next Monday. We're going out tonight with a track in support of the Roads Must Fall movement in Oxford. This is Ama Luca with Wake Up, Rise Up.
see the system collapse. So take a walk in our shoes as we visit your past. Some with ignorance, we witness in the critical mass. Critical analysis ain't written on plaques, so I'ma spit it in rap. Metaphorically, we bring in nitroglycerin tanks. Here to bond the current structures down to sizzling ash. Use the flames to put a light to set us within this past. It's the other side of history our syllabus lacks. Land grabs in the form of terroristic attacks. Then he claimed as the slaves through political acts. Sent us down to the mines and had us filling his bags. Then had a feeling at the end to give a little bit back. And you tried to say our scholars should be giving him thanks. If we bit in the hand, it only feeds us because it pillaged our lands. It was intended for a different tack. The next set of colonizers was his vision, in fact. Plan to spread that mindset to every inch of the map. Where they ain't got no business, but their business plans. More white men in power in most distant of lands. Today, the ones who gain the privilege still ain't typically black. So yes, we young, gifted and mad. 59% of us don't feel welcome, it's written in stats. They insist there's no racism, it's a thing of the past. As if our lived experience in a legitimate fact. When you give him a statue, you give him a clap. Don't black lives matter more than a criminal's cash? This pain hurts the same no matter the ethnicity, religion or class. Yeah, exercise, better listen to the that. diamonds still shining, what? dirty money still buys. So if roads gon' fall, what? then we gotta rise. What? Only through knowledge that will free these minds. See the structures start to topple as I speak these rhymes. If roads gon' fall, then we gotta rise. One and all, I'll be called to de-decolonize. If roads gon' fall, then we gotta rise. Scream it from the spires, de-decolonize It's time we stand tall and make a difference I wish that I could be oblivious But wasn't born with such a privilege See them holding all the riches Building walls instead of bridges Try to keep us out, we'll knock the door right off the hinges Knock them down from their pedestal to reach the earth Sit them right beside us as we speak our words Eye to eye you'll recognise our pains of equal worth Cause within your boardrooms you ain't the least concerned If each could learn how it appears to the use When you celebrate imperial pursuits that acknowledge in the horrors of these fearsome disputes How it influenced today Ain't no trees without roots You sowed the seeds, now you'll deal with the fruits And how we feel is very real All you need is the proof Don't let the media deceive you They're poisoning their readers It make you sick if you swallow what they feed You ain't got no leaders And it's about more than a statue This philosophy's still taught in our classrooms So till you decolonize in our eyes You're endorsing its values If you venerate the man then you celebrate his rhetoric and hide away the negatives But still go take the benefits Still go take cash from a man who raped my relatives Only thing we are racing is racial prejudice Diamonds still shining, dirty money still buys So if roads gon' fall, then we gotta rise Only through knowledge that will free these minds See that structures start to topple as I speak these rhymes If roads gon' fall, then we gotta rise One and all I'll be called to de-decolonize If roads gon' fall, then we gotta rise Scream it from the Spires DT colonize DT colonize Time we have to decolonize We all have to decolonize Cause roads must fall and we must rise DT colonize DT colonize